G'day there, you are listening to episode 239 of the Create and Thrive podcast and today I'm interviewing my friend and colleague Tracy Matthews uh, from Flourish and Thrive Academy, also her eponymous jewellery line. Today we focus on her story. She started her jewellery design business in the 90s and things have changed since then, both for her personally and globally. Uh, So we go through the iterations that her business has gone through and why and how she's made that work and uh, talk about basically how she's managed to stay successful as a jewellery designer through the decades and through the you know, economic turmoil of the 2008-09 financial crisis and coming up to today into the COVID crisis and uh, you know what advice she has uh, for other jewellery designers and makers in general. If you're not familiar with her work over at Flourish and Thrive Academy, she does specialize in helping and teaching jewelry designers specifically how to grow their businesses. So I was really excited to have her on the show today to share that knowledge with you. Uh, I actually met Tracy back in the early 2010s in uh, America. We both attended the same conference and uh, it was awesome to meet her and we've kind of kept in touch ever since and uh, I was just on her podcast recently as well actually the Thrive by Design podcast if you want to check that out a few episodes ago she had me on there and uh, I talked about how you can successfully work with your partner or spouse basically diving into how my husband and Nick and I run our home, our businesses, <laughs> how we balance everything, who does what and why, and just getting into the nitty gritty of you know that relationship. And we talk about that on that episode of the podcast. If you're curious, uh, and if you enjoy that and you want more, I actually did interview Nick on this podcast quite a few episodes ago. Now I cannot remember the number, but if you scroll back far enough, you'll see uh, the episode where he and I actually talked about all of that as well on this show. So I'm excited to bring you this interview with Tracy. I hope you enjoy it and get some pearls of wisdom. She's a very smart lady, knows what she's doing, and uh, she has a lot to share with you. So let's get into it. Do you want to grow a thriving, profitable handmade business? My name is Jess Van Den, and I'm here to help you do just that. I took my own handmade business full-time in 2010, and since 2013, I've helped thousands of makers just like you create and grow successful handmade businesses. So, are you ready to thrive? Let's get learning. I'm very excited today to have the lovely Tracy Matthews joining me on the podcast. Hello, Tracy. Hey, Jess. It's so great to be here and great to chat to you uh, for, it's been a long time. (laughs) It has. We actually have known each other for many, many years and we met back at the World Domination Summit. God, I can't remember what year that was, like 2013, 2014, yeah, something like that. Yeah, 2012, 2013, something like that. Oh it was God. a long time ago because I think right around that time is when I was starting Flourish and Thrive Academy and um, launching into this, uh, you know, education in addition to being a jewelry designer. So uh, I remember meeting you there for the first time and we connected. Yeah, and we were kind of on the same journey almost. Yeah. Like I was, so I was doing the same thing around the same time. We both even have yoga teacher training certificates. How's that? Very strange. That so weird. We're like the same person, <laughs> just in different countries. <laughs> so yeah, I'm really happy to chat with you today about um, your journey because uh, our jewelry journeys are very different. Uh, I'm very, I'm like self-taught. Um, I did like a weekend course in silversmithing and I figured the rest out, whereas you are much more in the fine jewelry side of things. So let's rewind yeah. and start from the beginning. How did you get into jewelry making? Well, I've been designing jewelry for about 25 years, a very long time. 
because I'm pretty old. <laughs> you don't look it. Well, thanks, but I am pretty old. I'm like closer to 50 than, uh, than 40 <laughs> at this point. Um, so I started designing jewelry in college, I actually took a jewelry making class and it was at the beginning, it was the late nine or early nineties when I took the class and I started my business in the late nineties. And it was, uh, kind of the beginning of that independent maker scene. Like Etsy wasn't mm. around. Um, the only way that you could really grow a profitable business was to sell to stores, um, or do the, you know, basically like live event art fair circuit. And so I chose, I opted, I did a little of both, but I really went deep into wholesale and I launched my first, uh, collection to wholesale stores in 1998. And over the course of about 11 years, I was selling in over 350 stores worldwide. So wow. it was really exciting. Uh, the jewelry I was designing back then was different than what I do now because I was really focused on more a demi fine price point doing semi precious and silver and uh, gold vermeil. Mm -hmm. uh, I launched a jewelry collection in, I think, or excuse me, a fine jewelry collection in, I think 2006. And that was sort of the start, start of my fine jewelry journey. And, um, when 2008 came around, uh, my business actually like got wiped out because all the wholesale stores yeah. <laughs> were closed and filing for bankruptcy and 95 or 95% of my business was wholesale and only 5% was direct to consumer at that time. So mm -hmm. I decided to basically reinvent myself. I mean, what's happening right now with COVID feels very similar to that because like the people who are adapting and adjusting their business models are going to be the ones who kind of survive. Yeah. And those who kind of like stay stuck in doing the same old things are going to struggle probably. So this is a good lesson for us all. And hopefully my experience will help some of your listeners. Mm. Um, but during that time, I was working with a consultant and deciding what to do with my business. And I was really unhappy. Uh, I didn't like the direction of the jewelry industry at that time and like kind of the markets I was or the trade shows that I was participating in. So I had to do like a really deep dive search into like what I really love to do. And a couple of years prior, as I mentioned, I started this fine jewelry line. A couple of my friends and uh, previous customers were asking me to design things like engagement rings and special occasion pieces that were custom. And I really enjoyed that process. It was something really exciting and new to me. And so I made a really tough choice in at the end of 2009 to close my business, uh, Tracy Matthews Designs Inc. and launch a new company. Um, I waited for a little bit because I just needed a break. <laughs> so I started teaching yoga kind of full time and launched a, this fine custom jewelry business selling direct to consumer using my website as a tool to meet my clients. And in a very short period of time, it was extremely successful. And I, you know, was, you know, booking regular, you know, regular sales. I quickly built a wait list of clients. And in about 18 months of starting that business, I was making more money with like a one person uh, team, a team of one and an assistant, because I had a, mm -hmm. a production assistant, than I had personally made with a company selling to 350 stores around the world, making, you know, selling, having like annual sales of like seven figures. So it was a pretty interesting observation. And at that point I was kind of like, you know, I had been embarrassed that my first business kind of went down the toilet with, you know, the 2008, um, uh, great economic crisis and all those things. However, I realized, you know, 
and part of it was like embarrassment that, you know, my peers would find out or whatever. And then I realized, you know what, there's so many different ways to run a successful jewelry business. So whether you want to do the wholesale thing and go big or go home, kind of like I was doing, or you want to have a more manageable, uh, smaller, profitable business, but build it around your lifestyle, that there's so many different ways to mm. be successful. And um, when that happened, when I kind of came to that realization, that's when I decided to start consulting for a couple of jewelry companies. And I was working one-on-one with different brands and eventually that evolved into launching uh, something similar to what you do at Create and Thrive, which is Flourish and Thrive Academy, where we work with uh, jewelry designers and makers and aspirational product businesses to go from startup to seven figures. So it's been super fun. That's awesome. I love the story. And I think what you said about, you know, your experience during the global financial crisis is very much parallel to now. Um, And I love that you showed not only did you come through that okay, but you actually did better. Yes. By pivoting your business in a different direction. Yes. And I think this is something for anyone who feels like they're kind of struggling right now to think differently about how you're reaching your customers because. Um, you know, we've heard it a lot, but people are actually buying jewelry, like a lot of it online and, you know, our students and our, and I say this because I work with so many people or students who are, have really gone deep into email marketing and not worrying about feeling bad because they're, they're sending out sales messages to their clients are doing really, really well. I mean, I had one designer message me the other day and her sales from April of last year online are triple this year, which seems so weird, right? Like, because (laughs) everyone's like, oh, people are losing jobs. But a lot of people are just working from home. And the people who Mm -hmm. have, um, who sometimes are like dream clients or or the people with money aren't the ones getting laid off because they're in more professional um, businesses, not more service-based kind of industries. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. And, you know, those people, not only are they not laying off and they're working from home, they can't go shopping at the mall like they used to or down to the local boutique or whatever. So they, where do they have to shop online? Yeah. And I think people are really bored. It's like, yes. have, you, have you bought a lot of stuff? Like I bought so much stuff in the last like <laughs> six weeks because you can't even go somewhere to pick something up. I'm just like shopping, shopping, shopping. <laughs> so bad. Um, I haven't been too bad, thankfully. Um, But um, yeah, I can see that it would definitely be something that a lot of people will be doing. And I'm hearing that from my students as well, that a lot of them are doing surprisingly well, like they didn't expect to be doing. And even me with my, my jewelry business, like I've had to um, switch to, like I used to offer free shipping, not anymore. I have to charge full shipping because I need tracking now because of the you know, the slowdown in all the, the planes and then the cargo and all that sort of stuff. And it doesn't seem to have affected my sales. So, you know, as I would have expected it to. So it's really, really interesting. Of course, being in the wedding industry, not, not really selling as many wedding rings as normal right now, (laughs) but uh, definitely selling more of our other sort of jewel, our other styles of jewelry earrings and stuff like that. So yeah, it's really interesting. Um, Now I want to kind of Go back. So with your wholesale business, mm-hmm. uh, how did you grow that? And putting aside the pandemic after kind of we've gotten back to normal, do you think those, the tools that you used to grow that business would still work now? And if so, what are they? Um, well, first of all, I feel like sales techniques and relationship building are, are timeless qualities. Mm-hmm. And it's something that will work for any kind of business model for the long haul. So 
The short answer is yes, wholesale techniques will still work, <laughs> uh, whether you're doing it back in the 90s, the 2000s, or even like the 2020s that, we that we're in today. Um, but what, so when I built that wholesale business, I mean, it was so different back then because when I started my business, I don't even think I had an email address. Online mm -hmm. shopping wasn't a thing. I definitely didn't have a website. So uh, the way I built like in the early days of building the wholesale business was literally like picking up the phone, asking <laughs> for referrals, calling people, asking who the buyer was, sending out line sheets, following up like two weeks later to make sure that they got them, trying to set up an appointment, like all those things. Um, and so the way that I did it is um, I lived in San Francisco at the time. Um, I currently technically reside in New York City. I'm spending time in Arizona with my boyfriend during uh, the COVID stuff. But um, when I initially started, I would just go around to the local shops in my area, in the, in the Bay Area in San Francisco. And mm -hmm. sometimes I would walk in and say, hey, can I, you know, and do like sort of like cold walk-in, which I don't re necessarily recommend these days, um, mm -hmm. just to kind of connect and find out who they were and to compliment them on their things and then to try and book an appointment. Anytime I ever did that though, I would have my samples either in a bag with me or in the trunk of my car. So like if for some reason they were willing to see it, I could whip it out and mm. show them the product. Um, but basically uh, after about uh, five to six months, I think I got into about eight stores. Um, it was a little bit slow going in the beginning and I was married at the time and my um, former husband had like basically like a talk with me one day. He's like, girl, you got to start making some sales or you have to go back to your retail job because you're not, this is not working for me <laughs> mm. and we need the income coming in. So it kind of lit a fire on, under my uh, bootay because I didn't want to go back to working in a corporate job or in a retail job or any of the other things I wanted to really make my business work. So mm. um, it, it got me moving. And after I was in about eight stores, I landed an account in San Francisco called Metier which is a really well-known account. And I got that contact through referral. So networking is really good asking for referrals and being referred to a store is still, I think, a really good strategy. Mm -hmm. And uh, that opened up the door to me getting a sales rep. And that sales rep helped me get into probably within the second year that I was in business, about 30 to 40 stores. And then at that point, um, uh, I started, I landed a couple of more key accounts, including Twist uh, online here in Portland or in Portland, Oregon, uh, in the United States. And a couple of other key accounts that, that when people ask like, where are you sold? You could like name drop basically. And mm -hmm. that helps open the door to getting into better, stronger accounts. So I just, I kept wash, rinsing and repeating that when email became a bigger thing, we would send, you know, smaller versions of the, the line sheet via email or a link to it. So people could have access to it earlier. And we just created, created a system of follow-up for that. And so you know, I think the things that, that worked then still work now. I think the challenge that um, designers have now and makers have now with getting into wholesale, especially if they're really prominent stores that people want to get into, mm. is that those buyers are bombarded. So it, the, the lead <laughs> time, take, it takes a lot longer. Um, oh, and what I didn't mention is eventually, I think after my second year in business, I started doing markets and trade shows for the wholesale mm -hmm. industry. And so that helped me meet buyers, but that I think is very different 
these days. And so that's, that's one difference um, that I would say if you're trying to get into wholesale these days, that would be a little bit more of a challenge. Um, so these days, in order to be successful, I think the relationship building, like building the connections, building your network, asking for the referrals, building the relationships with buyers, continual follow up, even in the face of people saying no to you is a really important, but you have to come from a place of service, meaning like think about what's in it for them and be kind and find some point of commonality when you're starting these conversations with them, whether you're, you know, connecting with them on Instagram or connecting with them through email or whatever it is, because I think it's really important to create that rapport even more mm. so now. Um, and I do think, I mean, it'll be interesting to see after this. I do think trade shows and events can be really important. I do not think that they're necessary for building a strong wholesale business anymore. I think mm -hmm. that they're good, but they're, they're not necessary. And you have to expect that if you're investing the five to 10 to $15,000 to be in one of the prominent wholesale shows that your first couple of times showing, there is a good chance that you may or may not make your money back. And that you have to really view this as a marketing expense, not a sales event anymore. Mm -hmm. I think the difference back in the late nineties and early two thousands, when I was doing these trade shows, I would go invest in a show and sometimes make like five to 20 times my trade show investment because, um, it was so much harder to access buyers back then. Um, people didn't have websites. They didn't have, um, selling via email wasn't as big of a thing back then. Mm -hmm. And so that was how you actually met people. But now because the internet is so prominent in the sales cycle, there's so many platforms and different ways for buyers to meet um, different brands that they're not, not as many are walk, are walking the shows anymore. So it's a, it's a little bit of a different experience, but it does create trade shows do create credibility, I believe. And, um, can work. Time will tell to see what happens after this stuff. I mean, the Javits Center, mm -hmm. where a lot of the, the best trade shows are right now is a hospital <laughs> Oh my god! <laughs> in New York City, which is kind of nuts. Yeah, definitely. So back then in that stage of your business life, did you like work up to the point of having a whole bunch of employees? Like, did it turn into a bigger business than you? Uh, it was a big, bigger business than me. Um, I changed and iterated a lot during mm -hmm. the process. Like initially, you know, I started my line as actually beaded jewelry line, even though I was a trained metalsmith, I was working out of my apartment and I didn't want to set up a torch there. You know, I was mm -hmm. newly married and, um, I didn't want to like burn the place down. <laughs> <laughs> Not good. You know, all those, <laughs> all stuff. um, so I started out as a, like having a beaded jewelry line, which was actually really popular at that time. There were some like Dog Yard and uh, Lori V. These were like brands that were just coming on the scene, Wasabi, all beaded jewelry lines. And uh, so it was kind of a trend back then. Mm -hmm. And uh, eventually we moved into an office. And once I did that, I hired my first um, like contractor who eventually became an employee, Mara, who helped me with production. I got a big order from a store that's at the time I was like, Oh my God, I've made it. I got a $5,000 order. I was like, like totally like I'm crushing it. This is awesome. How am I going to, how am I going to produce this? So I found a girl to help me and she ended up working for me for many years. And she was at art school at the time. We ended up hiring a bunch of her friends in art school who were in the jewelry arts program 
they were actually better jewelers than I was. So it was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> they could figure out a lot of things and uh, that freed up my time to actually make more sales because I don't know about you um, and anyone listening, but my hands started hurting. Like once I was starting mm -hmm. to produce a lot of orders and um, I like the initial design process when you're creating a piece for the first time, I didn't like as much the repetition. So yeah. I knew that for me, that was going to be a better move to go. And then over time, you know, I, I, I hired more people, eventually I had about 13 uh, employees and contractors before I left San Francisco. And then when I moved to New York city in 2006, um, I took two of the people with me and I hired my sister to be my operations manager. And so the four of us moved to New York and I out, I ended up at that point outsourcing a lot of our production to local factories, mm -hmm. um, parts or parts of the production and eventually hired a salesperson in New York. So, um, I went, I, I think the most people I had on my team is really 13. And then I think the really sweet spot was about five or six when mm -hmm. I was in New York, but like taking some of the production off the plate, um, from in-house production and moving that over to like factories that were doing the work for us. Do you want to up your Pinterest game and make sure that you're getting as much traffic as possible from this awesome marketing opportunity? If you're not already taking advantage of the huge amount of traffic that Pinterest can send your way and all of the people who are on the platform looking for things to buy, then you are missing out. But I can help. I am running the Pinterest challenge in the Thriver Circle all of September. Basically, it's going to be a chance to work together with a whole bunch of people. So there'll be that sweet, sweet accountability of not just doing it on your own. So we're going to be spending t a minimum of 10 minutes a day every weekday throughout September working on improving our Pinterest game. And not only that, every weekday inside the Thriver Circle Facebook group, I'm going to be sharing one Pinterest tip or trick to help you get your head around the platform and maybe learn some stuff that you didn't know you could do with Pinterest. If you'd like to join us, head on over to thrivercircle.com prior to September 1st and sign your good self up to join us for the Pinterest challenge. And if you do that, I really strongly recommend you get in a few days early and make sure to go do my Pinterest for business workshop that I ran live inside the Thriver Circle last month. And it was really in-depth, awesome workshop. Lots of people attended live, lots of questions answered, and I covered everything you need to know to get started with Pinterest for Business and to set yourself up with a Pinterest plan to get you going throughout September in the Pinterest challenge. I hope you can join us for that. I'm excited about it. I'm excited to really get back into Pinterest for my own businesses because I know how successful it's been in the past when I've put the effort in. So if you want to join us, head on over to thrivercircle.com, get yourself signed up and come on over and be part of the Pinterest challenge for 2020. Yeah. And so now after the financial crisis, you completely changed and went back into the fine jewelry. How did that change your marketing and like, it would have been completely different, I imagine, in some ways. Oh, it's so different. Well, you know, I had a big, I had a decent size email list uh, from towards the end, you know, I was collecting email addresses and like, I'm surprised because I had maybe like 2,500 or 3,000 people on an email list. And back then that seems like a lot, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, whatever. And uh, so I just basically announced like what I was doing. Uh, I would say most of the people didn't really come along for the ride at that time. Hmm. But 
slowly but surely, you know, when you're designing things that are 1,000, 2,000, 5,000, 10,000, $20,000, you don't need that many sales in order to be mm. successful. So I would, I would just focus on getting one client at a time. Sometimes they were referrals from friends. Sometimes they were people that found me on the internet. Sometimes they were, uh, I'd be sitting at a dinner party and just like meeting someone new and chatting to them about what I was doing and, or what I did. And they'd be like, Oh, well, I'm thinking about getting married. Could you design something with the Sapphire that I bought? And I was like, <laughs> absolutely. Let's do this. So, you know, it was a whole, this whole system of basically like relationship building. And I did that through, um, but I built relationships through like optimizing my website for, to attract the right people. Um, you know, optimizing my SEO for like local jeweler and NYC kind of thing. Um, asking for referrals, uh, doing a good job so that the people who are actually wearing my jewelry would send their friends to me. And that's mm. how I built that business. And it was super, it was easy. I mean, I don't have a problem talking about what I do. Uh, mm -hmm. You might notice I'm talking about <laughs> um, So it was never really a problem for me to just like, uh, I, I'll say self-promote, but not in a sh like a weird shameless way, but just naturally talking about what I did and like listening to people and saying like, well, you know, like, I can help you with that sometime if you ever want to redesign those heirlooms that your grandma left you or whatever. So, you know, in the conversations, you know, when you learn to talk about what you do effectively and you have a strong story about why you're doing what you do, it becomes really easy to get customers and it's super simple for me. So, um, I think that's why my business, I learned so much in the first 11 or 12 years of running a jewelry company that by the time I started the second jewelry company, like everything I'd learned in that process just became, it was like innate and became, it's so quick to build the business. That's awesome. And so did you kind of build a, a bigger business again or did you, I mean, I'm thinking cause it's custom jewelry. You kept it super small, maybe you and like one other person. I think you said you had uh, a production assistant. We outsource all of the production to mm -hmm. uh, jewelers in NYC. So it's a little bit tricky now because everyone's closed. I was telling you in the <laughs> pre-interview, like I had to take a pause, um, which is fine for me right now because I have other, other businesses. And uh, when I really started ramping up, it's interesting because during that process, you know, I was getting like recruited by other jewelry companies to design for them, which is, was really interesting for me because I've always been an entrepreneur. Mm. So I was doing some freelancing. And so in the, in the beginning I was, uh, running all of the production myself and running all the, the projects myself and running around to the different jewelers in the diamond district in New York. And then I just started getting too busy. And so I eventually hired a production assistant mm. and I had a guy working for me for many years named Daniel. And when he left, um, to go be a yoga teacher himself, I ended up finding an executive assistant who lived in New York who could take over his responsibility and also do some of the other stuff that I needed in my business. So I've been mm -hmm. able to successfully run a multiple six figure business with just one uh, part-time executive assistant working half of her hours on that. <laughs> so it's been, it's good. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Now, do you, uh, my curiosity, do you think being where you are is a part of your success? Like being in somewhere like New York where there's so many people, so many opportunities to network in a small area? Um, well, I mean, it does have it, its advantages, but I have to say like, not all of my customers are from New York. I have a huge yeah. customer base in San Francisco. Random people find me from all around the world. I mean, I've shipped to New Zealand, Australia, UK, 
um, for this custom jewelry business. And I'm always like flabbergasted. I'm like, how did you find me? Like, oh, it's just for <laughs> something online and your image popped up. I like the jewelry and whatever. So that's where um, good optimization goes. Mm. I also think I have a really strong network. I mean, I'm all people think know me as a jewelry designer because when I was starting my career, that's what I was doing. And so I get referrals a lot. And, uh, so being in New York is helpful from a production standpoint. It makes it really easy. But what I will tell you is I know designers who are doing really well, having the same business model in Chicago, in Virginia in Washington, DC, in San Francisco, in Minnesota, like in, in multiple different countries or excuse me, multiple different um, states in the United States or and around the world because um, some of the designers that I work with are international mm. um, doing a similar business model and I think it really just depends I mean some people like to do all the work themselves but the majority of the people who are really scaling this kind of business and and what I mean by scaling is like getting uh, to a point where they're doing really well mm. um, they have they're typically working with you know, an outside caster and an outside jeweler and stuff like that so that they can get some of that stuff off their plate. And they might do some in-house finishing or stone setting, uh, but a lot of them are working with people locally to get it done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's a really important point because there's, there's a cap. Like if you're doing everything yourself, there's a natural ceiling to what you can achieve yeah. because there's only so many hours in the day and only so much time you have. Uh, and it's only, you know, if you do want to go big and, and, and grow a really like, a, you know, a business that's bringing in a lot of money or that's exactly. having a lot of reach, you need to outsource. There's no way around it. There is no way around it. It's, um, and it's smarter. You know, I think mm. what people don't realize or think about as they're doing this, you know, I know a lot of people get into making jewelry because they love working with their hands. It's a meditative process. You know, they love the design piece, but if you're really serious about growing a business, like what's the best use of your time? Sure. Designing is very important because that's what you're selling. And, um, what also is really important is getting like low leverage stuff off your plate, because if you're spending all your time doing administrative work or things like running around the jewelry district, like I was for a long time, that's not really the best use of my time because anyone can do that who is trained and that I trust the best use of my time is actually making more sales or like mm. doing the things that are going to actually promote the business. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's also, there's also a difficulty. I know a lot of people in my community have, and this is a personal choice as well, this idea of, of the handmade going beyond yeah. you, like, is it still handmade? You know what? And it, I mean, like let's let's be honest about the reality of the world that stuff you go buy at target is handmade it's just handmade by somebody in china or yeah. you know some they're just not earning a decent wage for it and you know it's it's a different mindset uh, it's a factory model rather than you know the the little person sitting in their own room by themselves model and you just have to decide what's right for you. Like, okay, I want it to all be handmade by me and that's part of my story and that's part of my brand. Or I can change that and go, well, it's, you know, it's designed by me, as you say, jewelry designer rather than jewelry maker. And I might have a hand in, I might not, but hey, I know the people who are doing it. You know, I work with them. It's ethical, all that sort of stuff. So it's, it's about changing, not necessarily changing, but deciding on which model you are comfortable with. A hundred percent. And you know, what's so interesting in like 2010, 11, 
and 12 when I was kind of like starting to work with designers um, and consulting for them and then decided to launch Flourish and Thrive Academy. And I was doing like some consulting call with someone. We were trying to figure out the name for the company. And a bunch of people were like talking about um, makers, makers, makers. And I was like, well, that's not, I don't even come from, I don't even call myself a maker, even though I make jewelry when I started, because I'm, I'm much older than you, Jeff, but when I started, people just called themselves jewelry designer and jewelry designer meant the same thing as a jewelry maker. So it was mm. like, like, I don't, I, I personally don't see the difference. And I think like the real hard stop difference was when Etsy kind of came on the scene. Yeah. That was the platform for like a bunch of, uh, actually a bunch of my employees showed it, showed it to me for the first time. Um, that was like the platform for people who are just starting out in like arts business and a handmade business to like basically get exposure for their work. Mm. And yeah. so I think that, that was kind of like a shift in terminology. I guess. That's really interesting. Yeah. Cause I mean, I started my jewelry business in 2008. Yeah. So Etsy oh, right had a, <laughs> yeah, like literally the year of, I mean, I had a full-time job at the time, so it wasn't, I didn't need the money. Yeah. Um, it was a hobby. um just for fun and I was making sales and stuff like that but yeah it's quite funny how that happened I mean here in Australia to be honest we didn't really have the downturn that a lot of the uh, a lot of the rest of the world had thankfully we were pretty insulated from it um but yeah so yeah I I mean it's Etsy was how I started like until that like I'd I'd, it's funny because I'd had I'd had websites since I was like a teenager in the 90s I like that was my hobby I taught myself html and learned how to make websites and stuff so the internet was very comfortable to me Mm -hmm. um but yeah when when Etsy came along was like oh look this is because I didn't want to do markets I'm not a morning person I didn't want to get up early I'm like hey here's a way to for me to just easily sell the stuff I'm making and all this jewelry that's piling up because I, I have this new hobby I'm obsessed with and kind of it went from there so it's it's definitely opened up the world of selling I think to people who never would have considered it otherwise absolutely and I think Etsy's been a really valuable uh tool if you think about it that way for people to build a business. And uh, I think if you use Etsy in the right way and learn how to leverage that to move customers over to your own website, Mm. then you can really build, you know, use those both platforms as like to bounce off each other. Yeah. A really big thing I'm always keen to drum into people's heads is I hear so many people say my Etsy business. No, you don't have an Etsy business. Stop thinking about it that way. You have a business and Etsy happens to be a one of the platforms you sell on. It's a different mindset. Yes. A hundred percent. I'm right there with you. (laughs) (laughs) Cause you encourage most of your students like to have their own thing, don't you? Their yeah, own website. We, don't, we don't really teach any Etsy marketing uh, in it mm-hmm. for a very specific reason. You know, when I come from a, since I'm older than you, like I'm, I have like 10 years on you at least. And no, I'm 39. You don't have 10 years on me. Yeah. I'm 48. Oh, what? 49. No, I'm 49. No, 48. <laughs> no, I don't think I'm 50 this year. I think I'm turning 49 this year. Oh my God. I love how at this stage you just kind of forget. I'm like, oh, I'm 30 something. I'm, I'm in the late. This year. Oh my gosh. Am I that old? I don't know. I No, no, no. I'm turning 49. I'm 49. <laughs> so I'm 10 years older than you. Okay. You are. Yeah. There you go. Um, and, uh, I, f- I forgot what I was going to say. Oh, so what I was gonna <laughs> Etsy. Say Etsy. So, uh, there's a very specific reason about why, we don't really teach how to grow an Etsy business. We always share 
that we believe it's good for a second platform. I've just seen too many designers basically get shut down overnight and their mm -hmm. entire business gets shut off for a variety of different reasons. You know, like Etsy has control over your destiny. And I, I, uh, while I think it's a good place for someone who's just testing out the waters to see if they want to run a business, it's great. I do think that it's, it's time consuming and now there it's more pay to play than ever was before. Mm. And it's hard to really stand out and someone could get like, I call it like Etsy ADD, like someone lands on your page and they're like, Oh, I want to buy this. And then all of a sudden they click something, they move away from it and then they can't find it again. And you've lost that customer. You have like no control over getting them to actually buy from you. Mm. And, uh, after one of our students, um, she came to us like maybe four or five years ago. They had a really successful business on Etsy. They were making like 500 grand a year, like no joke. Like it was a ton of money mm -hmm. and, um, they live in Texas and there was a big hurricane that basically knocked out power, internet, all access and overnight Etsy shut them down. Uh, customers were complaining cause they had placed orders Ugh. and they weren't getting shipped, but she couldn't they literally didn't have power or internet and she couldn't communicate or even get online to say like, look, we're, our shop is closed for like maybe a week or something like that. And it mm -hmm. was similar to like what happened in New York on hurricane Sandy when we lost all power, um, you know, on half the Island in Manhattan. So, um, like it, it totally sucked and their business got, her business got shut down and you've heard of that happening over and over again. And I just, I really, um, come from the school of thought that like, if you're building a brand, you're much safer. It's going to take longer probably to get customers and longevity out of people, but you want to really be building on your own platform over time mm -hmm. and doing everything that you can to build your audience there. And so, because you have control over it, like if you want to shut yourself down, you can shut yourself down, but no one's going to else. Is gonna <laughs> shut you, down. you know what I mean? So mm -hmm it's really about having that control and being able to have control of your brand. And so because I come from a more traditional school of thought of like how to do this, like it, it's just, um, we kind of skipped over that Etsy, that Etsy piece. But I do, mm -hmm. I do really think like, we know a lot of people who are using Etsy as a second source of revenue and it works really well if you do it right. Yeah, definitely. So do you have some kind of top tips for people who are, who want to set up their own website um, and really kind of drive their traffic there? What are some of the main things they need to focus on to make that a success? Well, first of all, I think the design of your website is really important. Um, and I'm sure you recommend this too. I think Shopify is one of the best platforms for, mm -hmm. um, for building an e-commerce site. It's super easy to get into. It's not crazy expensive. And they have tons of templates that actually work for e-commerce. I think the next thing that you need is to uh, have really great photography um, when, and strong calls to action on the images that are on your homepage and around the rest of your site that are moving people through that, um, through that cycle. A huge, you know, one mistake that I see a lot of designers make when they're setting up their own website, if they don't hire like a graphic designer to do it, if they're more DIY, is they put like random images that aren't sized properly and they're not formatted in the right way. And there's no call to action on any of the images. And so it's just a picture. It doesn't tell you anything. No one knows to click there to go shop the collection or whatever. Um, so I would search around for some sites and 
one of my favorite tricks, and it seems so obvious, but a lot of people don't do this, is take a look at websites of brands that you actually shop from, and especially the ones, the bigger brands who have a lot of money behind them, um, because they're always working on optimization and try to mirror what they're doing. I mean, it's not like really copying, but mirror what they're doing, pay attention to what they're doing to move people through that sales process. And you're going to notice a couple of things, you know, like when you land on the page, oftentimes you're going to get some sort of pop-up or sidebar pop-up that's asking you to enter your email address in exchange for something, you know, you were mentioning free shipping. So I'm assuming that you offer free shipping for people who opt into your email address or something or opt into your email list. So you mm -hmm. want to try continue trying to build your email list as you're doing this or giving them some incentive to, or, or urgency to actually shop now or a reason if they're not ready to shop now to get on your list for later when they are ready. So, um, use a great tool like Shopify, um, have great images, always be building your list and design your website for conversion. So people know what's next. Every page should have a call to action to take them to what you want to do next. So if you're about, if you have an about page on the site, if you end it just with a dangling Chad with like no opportunity for someone to either opt in your email list or shop your collection, that's a huge missed opportunity because we know that the about page on a website with a really strong brand story is one of the best things, conversion tools for people to get to the next step. And I have to tell you, there's two things on my website. My website needs is in dire need of a little bit of a refresh. Uh, my jewelry website, that is. <laughs> um, but the one thing that has worked the best to convert customers who've never met me before is the maker video that I have on the homepage of my site. You click it, it says like, um, watch this video, it pops up, it shares my story, why it's important, and why I love helping people and um, that in and of itself has been like the number one conversion tool on my site. So have a maker video or some visual representation of like what it is that you do so that people understand your story and they can connect with you because people buy from people. They're not just buying products. And, um, I would say the next thing is to make sure that your product photography, um, is consistent. So, you know, I really believe in white background photography. There are other people who think differently and some people sell really well, not using white background photography on their website. Um, once again, I'm probably a little bit more old school. <laughs> all the images need to look the same or similar format so that it's, it has um, less of a DIY vibe and more of a mm. professional vibe because I think, feel like that builds trust. Yep, definitely. And then, I think having those consistent photos is like yes. the number one thing you need to do. Well, you even have a photography resource. I think that we like shout out from now. And yeah. Now. Yeah. The current thrive guide to product yeah. photography. Yeah. Um, and then finally, I think it's really important to um, have social proof on your website. So whether you've gotten mm -hmm. in uh, press or um, you have customer testimonials or anything that you can, you can put on there to show what it's not only like to work for you, but to or reviews. I know a lot of people were selling like little and product do reviews. All those things really help people trust what you're doing and sell the product for you. Like, yeah, definitely. For instance, I mean, I'm going to divulge a beauty tip here, but I've had <laughs> fake eyelashes for a very long time. And now that the COVID thing's done, I can't get them done anymore. So I'm like dying because I do video all the time. And I really like the way it looks when I have at least a few fake eyelashes on, um, for, uh, 
for video, the look of video. So I was on this website called Lashify. Um, and I'm like, Oh, okay, which product should I buy? And my friend was kind of guiding me on some of it, but this one thing had like 4,000 customer reviews. I'm like, Oh, okay. That's the best one over the one. That <laughs> I mean, it like sold it for me. And so, you know, you might not have that many reviews and this is a bigger company, but at the end of the day, you know, that like, honestly, like think when you're shopping and buying things, like you'll notice that you start to buy or like trust things based on like reviews and testimonials. Yeah. I mean, who buys stuff online without looking at the reviews? I don't know. <laughs> it's kind of the deciding factor really of, of when you're buying from someone new that you don't know and trust already. Exactly. Uh, it's so important to have those there on your site. So, you know, if you like what I did in the beginning when I um, kind of started a new website and didn't have a review plugin or whatever, I just like copied and like screenshotted a whole bunch of my SEO reviews and pulled them across and put them in there Perfect. just so that, you know, they're there right on my front page. This is what my customers think because that's, you know, people care what other customers think. It's so important. They really do. <laughs> <laughs> so how do we think, so, I mean, I've been saying to my students right now that, you know, if you've been doing wholesale, you've been, if you've been doing markets and shows, you have to pivot right now. If you want to survive during COVID, you need to work out how to sell online. Would you agree with that? A hundred percent. Can I share with you something that some of my yes. designers are doing? That's so cool. Um, next week, I'm, I don't know when this is going to go live, but next week we're launching it. One of our designers decided she makes most of her money. She's built a really strong online contingent from her in-person events, but in-person events, if they get canceled, it's a huge financial setback for her. So mm. she's like, how can I replace the income of all these, um, in-person events, like the art fairs and all those things that I do like, um, and create some sort of like collaborative, um, virtual art show. So she tested something out. She did two in a row, two weeks in a row. And she invited, and she's doing another one. I think this week she's invited like two to three other artists to be on with her, whether they're, um, jewelry artists or painters or sculptors or whatever to participate in these events. And they have these like virtual happy hours. And then they do a virtual art show, you know, for two hours on like a Thursday night and they're crushing it. Like each of the brands were made like anywhere from like three to 4,000. It's like replacing, and they're not high price point, um, products. And so they've been able to replace their like show revenue by doing these virtual events, like a weekend show kind of thing. And so that is that kind of thing is doing really well right now. I think people want to have a sense of community and they love shopping on those events. And the cool thing about it is that when you collaborate with other artists, you guys can leverage each other's email lists as mm. well. And so you're, you're actually like cross pollinating and getting new customers, which has been amazing. And so I think there's a lot of things that you can do. We have some other designers who are collaborating with their wholesalers and doing. So, uh, I did a podcast interview that went live this week on my podcast thrive by design and Mallory shelter has a store in Washington, DC that is, or in Virginia or something that's closed. And, um, she had to cancel a bunch of her wholesale orders from the designers that she just placed. So she's mm -hmm. like, I want to work with you to try and sell through this product because I know you've already made it. So why don't we host virtual trunk shows and we'll do like a virtual trunk show with your product with the order that we were trying to, that I had to 
cancel or postpone and let's see if we can sell through. And so they mm -hmm. collaborated and those events have been going really well for her. So I think it's really fun to see the innovation that people are doing uh, using technology and leveraging, um, you know, their customers in their area to get people to like be shopping online. Or yeah, that's Google. really good. Yeah, I love the, the idea of having a little live events and stuff because like you said earlier on, people are stuck at home, they're bored, they want to be entertained and that's entertainment yeah. plus buying stuff, which is double the entertainment when it arrives <laughs> at your doorstep, right? Are you, guys, are you guys locked down in Australia or, or can you? We are. Um, we're actually just coming out slightly of our major lockdown as of tomorrow here in Queensland uh like there's certain small things that we can do like we could always still go to the supermarket we could always still go to the pharmacy we were allowed to go outside to exercise but we weren't allowed you know we had to social distance we're not allowed to go visit people um yeah so it's been like some things are still open like you can get a you can get takeaway food and coffee and you yeah. can still get get a haircut and stuff like that but most things um like retail shops are not like they don't have to be closed per se, but people really are supposed to stay at home. So yeah, it's been, um, it's been, I think there's been different levels of lockdown in different places. New Zealand went a whole nother step ahead of us and like shut everything. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, but they're just starting to come out of that now too. Cause we've got numbers down to pretty much nothing here in Australia. So oh, that's so good. If what's we can keep it that way. What's the first thing you're going to do? <sighs> well, the first thing is, it's actually my dad's 70th birthday this weekend Aww. and we were going to have a massive party obviously, but uh, now that we're as of tomorrow allowed to have, you know, two visitors, they're going to come over and have, we're going to have a very small, <laughs> a very small celebration for his 70th birthday. <laughs> that's so fun. That's awesome. Yeah. So that's, that's number one, but I'm just really looking forward to, you know, because I work at home and um, I live, you know, in the Sunshine Coast hinterland and the, my lifestyle hasn't changed a great deal. Like yeah. the only things that I really am missing, seeing my friends obviously, um, but also just something simple like taking myself out for brunch of a morning after I go for a swim in the ocean, like just those little things I'm missing right now that I'm looking forward to. Who knows when that will be happening again. But the ocean swimming, thankfully, is still happening. They didn't shut our beaches uh, for swimming, but um, they did shut them for everything else. <laughs> so it's been an interesting time. That's good. You're lucky. I'm like, what am I going to do first? I really miss going out to eat. Like I've, I've mm. never, um, cooked so much food in my life. I like <laughs> live in New York city. Usually I'm in Arizona right now, but like the take, I'm like really missing takeout. I'm like, wow, it takes a long time to cook every meal for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If I lived in New York, I don't think I'd ever cook. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I'm like really, really realizing how ridiculous my lifestyle is. <laughs> we got the grocery shop again this week. <laughs> I'm lucky to be married to someone who loves cooking. So he does most of that. So I'm very lucky. <laughs> now, one more question before I let you go, because I think this is a really imp important one. And I think this also harks back to the length of time that you've been in business. I, I love that you kept every single time you're talking about a website, you're always referring to having a mailing list, having an email list. I didn't even hear you mention social media. So how important is it still to have a mailing list? Oh my gosh. Right now, I think it's, it's so important. It, 
it's, it goes back to the, the, what I was saying about Etsy. Like we don't own Instagram, we don't own Facebook. And mm. if you noticed over the years, like when Facebook business pages first came out, like you would get a ton of traction and a ton of sales and conversions on those things. And then all of a sudden, like algorithms change. And you know what, when a post used to get like 150 likes, when you have like 2000 or something followers on your jewelry business page, you know, now it's getting like two, you know what I mean? So yeah. it's like, things change. you know, it's like in same thing with Instagram, you know, they're getting away with going away with likes and, you know, it's really more focused on different kinds of content, like video content still performs better than static content in certain respects and, um, getting the engagement, like, you know, controlled by the time of the day and what Instagram like sending out, out. So I think, um, the only thing that you can control what you have control over and that's uh your and i would have to say now more than ever, you know i'd say like in a normal um time when people have more freedom to go out and shop and they're busier because they're not in front of their computer all day or whatever um getting your emails open was is probably a little bit harder but now mm. right now people are having like skyrocketing email open rates and stuff like that because People don't have anything else to do. And I think having the best way to have control of your business is to really dial it down to like the essentials and the basics and email marketing is like never going to go away. I mean, it's going to, it might change <laughs> and you know, you might have to tweak things and optimize your emails so that they actually get opened and click through and so that you can sell the products on your website. But it's the one thing that you can control. Like you can't control what's going to happen in social media, you know, any of those platforms could shut you down tomorrow. And then you, you're like lost all your followers. 100% agree. <laughs> so still so important. Brilliant. Tracy, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you today. So fun to connect again. I'm so glad. Thank you for having me on the show. Now, where should people find about you and your jewelry and also Flourish and Thrive Academy? You can head on over to tracymatthews.com or flourishthriveacademy.com, uh, either one of those. And uh, you can find me on Instagram at TracyMatthewsNY. Awesome. Thanks again, Tracy. Thanks, Jess. Huge thanks to Tracy for coming on the show today and sharing her wisdom with us. And remember, if you're not already signed up, make sure to come and join us for the Pinterest challenge if you want to up your Pinterest game and get that sweet, sweet traffic heading to your website from Pinterest. It's happening all through September inside the Thriver Circle, my membership community for makers. And we've had a huge response. Heaps of people have signed up for it, which is fantastic. So welcome if you are one of them. If you are not, there is still time. We start on the 1st of September. So just head on over to thrivercircle.com, sign your good self up to the membership, and you'll be able to able to participate in the Pinterest challenge for 2020. I do run it every year, but this is the first year I'm adding that extra bonus of all the Pinterest tips and tricks that I'm going to be sharing with you throughout the month. So it's going to be more fun than ever before. And we'll get to see how we all do in the month of September. Uh, it's going to be kind of, I, I don't know if you're aware of the Pinterest video pins now. Uh, I'm going to be experimenting with video pins. Some of the people in the Thriver Circle who have already kind of started playing around after they took the Thriver, uh, the um, Pinterest workshop I did last month have seen some really great results from using video pins. So that's definitely something we'll be exploring. And uh, yeah, if you want to join us for that, it's going to be fun. It's going to be great. A group of people all working together, keeping each other accountable. And of course, I'll be sharing all those Pinterest tips as well. And you've got the workshop to go do if you want to kind of learn how to get started with Pinterest for 
the business or brush off that old account that's been languishing and not getting much love lately. I will see you again next week for another episode of the show. Until then, bye for now.